0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. There's so much mold and fungus in the world that scientists believe people probably breathe a little in every day. But now there are concerns about it showing up in cannabis
1: they were particularly concerned about immunocompromised people who use marijuana products, particularly if they're using it for medical reasons.
0: We'll talk about a spike in health warnings and why the cannabis industry says more study is needed. Then, a new Denver-based effort to learn more about what abuse and misconduct professional and amateur athletes are facing nationwide. And later, cooking can be about connection and culture.
2: I realized that there were so many other people who were just like me, who were like, not just Caribbean people, but other people who wanted to try different cuisine. And so then I started thinking, well, this book should look and feel like me.
0: We head into the kitchen with foodie and cookbook author Althea Brown.
3: Thank you for listening to CPR. Our mission is to deliver meaningful news, music, and cultural experiences to everyone using the power of the human voice in all its forms. Your membership makes this possible. And when you include CPR in your will or estate plan, you'll help to secure this important resource for generations to come. Celebrate a lifetime of listening with a legacy gift to CPR. To learn more, come to CPR.org and click on Support CPR. This is
0: Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Colorado's marijuana authorities have been busy issuing health warnings about mold. Last year, there were 17 warnings, the most in seven years, affecting dozens of stores across the state. The molds have been associated with illness and, in rare cases, death but Colorado marijuana growers say these recalls are not fair. Here to break it down is CPR's Ben Marcus, who has been following this issue. Thanks for being here, Ben. Thanks for having me. My understanding is there are no known deaths in Colorado from mold or fungus in marijuana products. Why is the state cracking down on growers? So
1: yeah, it's true that fungal infections are rare, Uh, but they do occur at a higher rate in cannabis users. So the CDC did this big study. They looked at thousands of insurance claims and they found that 0.08% of marijuana consumers will develop a fungal infection that can be deadly. That's really small, but it was significantly higher than for people who didn't use cannabis. There have been deaths linked to fungal infections from cannabis use in other states other places in the world. And so the regulators, the scientists really came to the state and were like, we need to do something about the presence of molds, yeast in marijuana products. And they were particularly concerned about immunocompromised people who use marijuana products, particularly if they're using it for medical reasons. Those are the people most in danger. And now they've started testing for something called Aspergillus, Mm. uh, which is just new in recent years.
0: And that new testing is partly what's leading this rash of health warnings.
1: That's right. If you say aspergillus now to marijuana growers, they get a little shiver in their spine because aspergillus is everywhere in the environment. The CDC says we probably breathe a little bit of it every day. And so the growers are saying, look, it's everywhere. It's so easy to fail these tests for aspergillus in the cannabis. So it's not fair. Such small thresholds end up losing product because of that. So they're urging the state, Colorado, to study what is a safe or an unsafe level of aspergillus. Uh, One of the growers that I talked to that the state issued health and safety advisories for, they found contaminated products, 70 pounds worth of cannabis they found to be contaminated and it stretched back all the way to 2020 for stores all across the state. And so this has a big impact when they find uh, this aspergillus.
0: What does the state say about this, that it's supposedly too easy to fail?
1: So the state obviously was really concerned about the potential for illnesses and death. And so they wanted to get ahead of this thing. A lot of other states in the country that have cannabis were already testing for Aspergillus and these molds. Um, And they said, look, we're willing to move the thresholds, move the testing standards. That would all be part of a public process down the road with input from scientists and growers. And so they're flexible uh, on some of these testing standards.
0: What more could the state do?
1: Uh, Right now, Colorado requires the testing at the end. What they're not doing really is regulating the cleanliness of the grow to control these molds in the first place. And so are they designing it with proper ventilation? Are they washing the walls? Mm. Um, There are proven ways to manage molds in growing things like leafy greens, for instance, indoors. So there are ways to do it. I think the problem for Colorado is that cannabis is still federally illegal. And so the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, isn't coming in with all their expertise and science Mm. knowledge and helping people get through the process. So really it's up to individual states to kind of figure this stuff out without a lot of federal guidance.
0: Colorado allows marijuana companies to recover tainted product, right? So this was kind of wild to me. They're allowed to treat marijuana that has
1: molds, with ozone or irradiation. And scientists tell me that they can just blast this stuff with these treatments until it passes the test. Uh, They're saying that some of these scientists believe that growers are abusing these treatment methods to get the marijuana to pass the test at the end so that it can go into the store. They said that if you wanted to do that for leafy greens, for instance, if you had a tainted product, you couldn't treat it until it passed. You'd have to just get rid of the tainted product. So if it's wouldn't be allowed for, t- for leafy greens in your salad. Why allow it in the cannabis?
0: Wow. Bottom line, Ben, how concerned should consumers be about purchasing contaminated cannabis?
1: So uh, again, the fungal infections are rare, um, but they have been known to occur. No deaths have been found in Colorado linked to this. Um, If you feel like you want to check and double check that your cannabis is part of one of these health and safety advisories, you can go to the Colorado Marijuana Enforcement Division webpage and see the health and safety advisories, and they have a very detailed list of the things you can look for, different batches, different stores they were sold at, uh, to try to see if maybe your cannabis that you purchased was part of one of these advisories.
2: Mm,
0: Very helpful information. Ben, thanks so much for sharing your insights with us today. Thanks for having me again. And I have a new word, Aspergillus, (laughs) in my vocabulary. That was CPR's Ben Marcus sharing with us the fallout following Colorado marijuana regulators recalling marijuana products from dozens of dispensaries due to concerns about mold. You may read Ben's reporting on this story on our website, which is CPR.org. The U.S. Center for Safe Sports is launching a survey to better understand the scope of abuse and misconduct that athletes across the country are facing or have faced in professional and amateur sports, from Olympic-level athletes down to those who play in the neighborhood soccer league. Adult athletes are invited to complete the 2024 Athlete Culture and Climate Survey starting February 9th. Submissions will be anonymous and an independent research firm will compile the results and release them publicly just before the Olympic and Paralympic Games get underway in Paris this summer. The center is based here in Denver and was established seven years ago to create accountability in sports following the sex abuse investigation that sent USA Gymnastics doctor Larry Nassar to prison. I spoke with its CEO, Jerise Kalan. Last spring. Tell us about
4: the work that you do. Sure. So, the Center for Safe Sport was opened in 2017, um, shortly after Larry Nasser was arrested and put in jail. And so, this was at a time where athletes, coaches, the nation, Congress were just very, very angry and wanted to see substantive change when it came to protecting athletes, particularly within the Olympic and Paralympic movement. And so we opened our doors with a very simple mission, and that is to end abuse in sport. And so we've got jurisdiction over um, U.S. Olympic and Paralympic athletes and all those that kind of fall up under the movement. So think about coaches, doctors, um, and not just Team USA, right, the 600 athletes that are headed to Paris, but also all of those kids that roll up under in these sports who are one day to be, you know, Olympic hopefuls. And so we've got a really big mission, a really big task, and we do that in a couple of different ways. One, we really focus in on education because Mm. what we found is so very important that those who, particularly who interact with kids, understand how to recognize, report, uh, and respond to uh, sexual, physical, emotional abuse and misconduct, first and foremost, The center also has the ability and has developed policies, safety policies, for every national governing body within the Olympic and Paralympic movement. So think about gymnastics, curling, hockey, track and field. All of those organizations um, are required to use our policies and also push those down to their local affiliated organizations. And we audit against them to make sure they're actually doing what they're supposed to do, whether it is around one-on-one contact or communications or how they're uh, traveling with teams. But what we're probably most known for is our response and resolution and our ability to not only investigate allegations of sexual abuse and misconduct within the Olympic movement, but to also sanction individuals so that we are removing people from sport that shouldn't be involved with sport and certainly shouldn't be involved with kids.
0: What are the pressing issues right now and challenges that you all are focusing on and addressing now that you've established
4: your center? So I think there's a couple of things, and unfortunately, one of them is tackling sexual abuse and misconduct within sport, right? And unfortunately, that is something that we continue to see as pervasive, not only in sport, but in youth schools and after-school programs, et cetera, right? Abuse happens at all levels, whether you're elite or not, and at all ages. And that's one of the reasons why the center, we not only investigate allegation of abuse misconduct that happened to minors, but also adults, because it... It is pervasive. And one of the things that we are starting to see change, which is great, is that people are starting to recognize when things aren't quite right. And if you think back to five, 10 years ago, one, there wasn't a place to report. And so now that we've got this centralized location for folks to actually come and report and tell their stories and to seek um, answers, right, and resolution to some of this, but it's really important that they understand that there's a place that they can actually do that. You know, another emerging area for us is around emotional and physical abuse misconduct. You know, it's not just sexual abuse, misconduct. It's all these other things that happen along the way that really impact them, whether they are just being beat down emotionally or physically, that kind of lead and kind of perpetuate some of that. And we're seeing more reports on that front than we have ever seen before. What can be done to eliminate this? So I think, first and foremost, it's this right here, where people are actually talking about it openly and honestly. Nobody really talked about abuse um, in this way before hundreds of women talked about what happened to them with Larry Nassar or the National Women's Soccer League, right, came out and said, hey, this is what happened to me. So I think part of it is is us continuing to have conversations around it and kind of taking away the stigma from really just acknowledging it and and admitting that this has happened and for you to be able to seek answers, sometimes people are embarrassed. They don't want to talk about it because they, one, they just don't want anybody to know and they don't want to be judged. And sometimes they just don't know if anything can happen. So I think a big part of it is having conversations about it and being open about it to say, look, this is what happens. And then also driving the accountability to make sure it doesn't happen again. I mean, it's one thing for us to have a place to report abuse, but athletes in particular, no matter their age, have to understand and trust that someone is going to take some action. And I think those coaches, those doctors, and other athletes who were offenders were removed from sport and penalized, right? Because that's the big period. You have to drive that accountability piece, and without it, it's just system doesn't work.
0: Are there efforts to increase accountability? So we, the center is lucky
4: that we have not one but two laws that help drive our work. So in 2017, the State Sport Authorization Act was passed. And then in 2020, the Empowering Olympic and Amateur Athletes Act of 2020 was passed as well. Both of those laws combined give the center exclusive authority to drive that accountability on the organizational level and the individual level. We've talked about the individual level, right? Investigating cases of abuse, removing people from sport. We also work really close with law enforcement, and sometimes those investigations will yield criminal charges as well.
1: Mm.
5: The
4: other part is making sure that organizations are doing what they're supposed to do to protect their athletes, no matter if they're on the road, if they're at practice, if they're going to the games, and, who can, and and no matter what age they are. So really making sure that these organizations are putting in safety measures in place for all of their athletes, and then following them, and then also driving accountability within their organization. So if someone is not committed to safety, if someone is allowing abuse to go on, you know, really requiring them to take a cold, hard look at that, removing those folks and really making sure that they're living up to, you know, what is the embodiment of being an elite athlete, right? You want to do your best, but you cannot do your best if you are constantly concerned about being abused in some way. So I think it's, it's all about making sure that, you know, we are removing people who shouldn't belong, but also driving policies, procedures, actions that are there to help keep athletes safe and make sure that we hold organizations accountable to those.
0: Now, do you have any sense of how prevalent this is in terms of data? You know, it, abuse
4: is a data on abuse is, is
0: kind of difficult. Um,
4: there's been a lot of studies that have been that have been done, and you know, you can find some that you know, one in four girls will be abused sexually before their age of eighteen, which is Crazy. I think the Mm -hmm. number is one in um, one in eight boys. That's a lot of kids. If you think about just you know a a classroom, right? You're going to tell me that there's like eight kids in this classroom that could potentially be abused. So abuse is very pervasive. For us, you know, we have jurisdiction over about 11 to 14 million people at any given time. And when we first opened, we got about 300 ports a year, which we thought at that time was a lot, right? Fast forward to today, we're getting 150 reports every week. So we're getting wow. more reports every month than we did it a year ago. So we know that one abuse continues to be pervasive. But what we also know is that people are starting to report. Um, and so I don't know if we're going to truly ever get a grasp, right, of what the real issue looks like, because there, it just, one, it takes a long time for people to disclose in many cases, and sometimes they never
0: do. Are there any efforts that you are doing here that are specific to Colorado?
4: Yeah, so um, about half of my staff are, and there's about 125 folks that work for the Center for state Board are based in the Colorado area, mostly in Denver. And so we do a lot of work, um, particularly around marketing and education, to help those folks who live in the state as well. So we're, we're really trying to elevate our name and presence, right? One, just so that people know that we're in their backyard, but also to really drive educational content. Um, because we want people to take our courses, we want people to learn from what we have. And Colorado is just a magnet for so many sports, right? It just makes sense for us to be here. And it also makes sense for people to use our resources here.
0: How does one get involved and get access to the U.S. Center for Safe Sport programming?
4: Yeah, so... Visit our website, uscenterforstatesport.org. From there, you can make a report. You can read audits that we do. And most importantly, um, you can take a look at our educational resources, take one of our courses, um, and really start to learn how to
0: recognize, report, and respond to abuse. What do you hope for the future? of sports in light of what you do with the U.S. Center for Safe Sport? You know, I think I have many dreams
4: (laughs) about the Center for Safe Sport, Um, but I think one of the the biggest ones, right, and probably the most wildly um, ambitious goals is that we get to a point where we are, are not so focused on resolving allegations of abuse because we have figured out how to prevent it. Um, and that our time and our energy and the work that we do and the work that governing bodies and organizations do to protect athletes is really about education and that we are stopping things before they escalate to abuse. We will always be available to take reports of abuse, but that's after the fact, right? That means that somebody has been already harmed. My dream is that we get to that
0: before it ever happens so that we don't have to go down that road. Well, since we're talking about kids and sports today, and you also referenced earlier parents, what do they need to know to best protect their child from any type of abuse?
4: You know, parents are integral into the safety of protecting their kids, right? We drop them off and hope for the best, right? Um, but. We, it doesn't stop there, right? Just like we wouldn't just, you know, throw any sort of food on the plate, right? We want to make solid choices for kids. Um, and I think one of the things that I think parents can do first and foremost is, one, understand what abuse looks like, right? Know some of the warning signs uh, and know what questions to ask their kids. And we've got a lot of scenarios on our website that help facilitate some of those conversations. The other piece is when you're signing your kids up for, you know, basketball camp or you're signing your kids up for a new wrestling gym, um, find out what their safety practices and policies are, what is okay there, and what's not. So that if you see something, a rule, that's being bent or broken, that you know how to recognize that and know what the steps are to report. And I think one of the biggest things, um, when you're looking for a new coach, right, and you want to drop your child off to, to learn some new skills and techniques, Check the Center's Centralized Disciplinary Database. That is where we list all the names of all of the people that we have removed from sports since we have opened. And I think that is a great resource. It's underutilized, but it can give parents some power to understand who and who should and who should not be around their kids.
0: Therese, thank you. Thank you. Jarese Kalan is the CEO of the U.S. Center for Safe Sport based here in Denver. We spoke last spring. The center has come under scrutiny in the past for how it's handled increased caseloads and, what some have asserted, are a lack of conclusive investigations. Starting February 9th, the center will launch a survey to get input from adult, professional, and amateur athletes about their experiences with abuse or misconduct. The goal is to reach a more diverse range of participants by expanding the survey beyond Olympic and Paralympic athletes. It will be available in both English and Spanish, and the athletes will remain anonymous. Survey results will be released just before the Paris Games begin this summer. Maybe you've had this experience on social media. You're swiping through puppy videos or recipe hacks, and then you're slammed with ads for free solar panels.
1: If you want to see if your home qualifies for no net cost solar, then click learn more below. Don't go out of pocket for solar when you don't have to.
0: A listener asked us through Colorado Wonders if those deals are legit. CPR's Climates and Environment reporter Sam Brash has answers.
6: May chin started coming across these ads about a year and a half ago. That's when she and her family moved from New York City to Denver.
7: You know, one of the things that we did want when we got here was to put in solar because there's so much sun, right?
6: So she started Googling around and talking to neighbors, and pretty quickly these promotions were all over her Instagram feed.
1: Would you take a Tesla Powerwall and brand new solar panels at no cost? They'll even pay you a few thousand dollars in tax credits as an incentive.
6: So if you wanna see if you qualify for this billion dollar stimulus program, click the button below this video and take our free 60 second survey today.
7: You know, it's like one of those crummy algorithmic things, right? You are interested in sustainable housing or whatever, and they just start popping up.
6: Chin thought these ads seemed scammy, but she still figured rooftop solar could be a good deal for her family. So she got a bid from a local solar co-op, a group that did not take out these ads. And the quoted price? It wasn't free. It didn't involve getting paid by the government, and the contractor was not about to throw in a free Tesla Powerwall. The total cost was $14,000.
7: I'm like, okay, so how are we going from pay nothing to 14 grand with a company that's reputable?
6: And if it is all a scam, she wants to know what's behind it. Like, who benefits from tricking people into the promise of free solar? To figure that out, I called one guy who, let's just say, is not a fan of these ads. I
3: hate these guys. I just wish they'd go away. (laughs) I just don't know how.
6: This is Mike Kruger. He leads the Colorado Solar and Storage Association, a trade group representing actual solar installers. And he says his members are not the ones taking out these ads.
3: These companies simply are what are called lead generation companies, and they will sell your name, your address, and your uh, contact information for pennies.
6: So that, that's why like, when I click one of these links, it's usually the first thing I see is like, Take this quick survey where I input my like name and address and phone number.
3: Yep. Yeah, simply all they're going to do then is put that into an Excel spreadsheet and they might say, you know, here's 10,000 names for 100 bucks. Kruger says
6: those leads rarely result in sales and the small benefit isn't worth a shady reputation.
3: It, it, it doesn't put the industry in a good light. There's no question. But I, I don't know how to shut these guys down.
6: And Kruger has tried. He asked the state attorney general's office for help, but it told him the ads didn't qualify as fraud because customers eventually get a contract with a real price tag. He says social media companies have been reluctant to police the issue, too. And while the federal government offers solar shopping tips, it's not shutting down these misleading ads. So right now, Kruger is just telling people, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is.
3: Who wouldn't want a free solar system. That sounds amazing, right? I'd also like a unicorn and, you know, uh, a garden in my backyard that grows itself. But that's not how it works.
6: In reality, he says solar is a major investment, usually around 15 to $20,000. In Colorado, customers can take advantage of an expanded federal tax credit and use solar to offset their electricity bill. But even then, Kruger says it usually takes eight to 10 years to pay for itself.
3: Um, So it certainly can be a good deal. But get three quotes. Talk to folks that are actually going to put some men and women on your roof and know that that's who you'll work with.
6: And he begs everyone. If you're on TikTok or Instagram or Facebook, enjoy the dance challenges and the cleaning tips. But if you see these solar ads, just keep scrolling. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News.
0: Do you have a question about life in Colorado that you'd like answered? Ask us at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders, and we may answer it on the air and online. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
7: Among Colorado's most common wildflowers, high in the tundra, is a bright and showy bloom that looks somewhat like a buttercup the little yellow alpine avens is adapted to high altitudes. Its leaves are thick to retain moisture in cold and drying winds. And a red pigment allows the avens to sprout early and last a little longer in a very short growing season. In fact, the leaves turn a beautiful red late in summer and provide a pop of color amid the browning tundra. Animals are generally not attracted to the flower because it contains a lot of bitter and potentially harmful tannin. So why does the perky little pika gather bright yellow avens? It turns out that tannin actually preserves the other grasses and flowers stored in pika hay piles. After the tannin degrades, the pika does finally consume the avens blossoms. A Colorado Postcard from CPR, with support from Coble & Company.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Now we're going to tempt your taste buds with Guyanese cooking. It's our latest story about people who've moved to the U.S. and built cultural connections and careers through food. CPR's Elaine Tassie introduces us to Althea Brown, whose new cookbook is called Caribbean Paleo.
2: Hi, I'm Althea, and welcome to my kitchen. I do my food photography and my videos here.
5: Althea Brown started a food blog about a decade ago when she came to Colorado for her husband's job. Maybe you're already one of the 62,000-plus people who follow her on YouTube or the 165,000 on TikTok. She records videos right here in her kitchen in Aurora. We'll talk about how cooking went from a hobby to a profession where now sometimes people just call her the Metemji lady.
2: Metemji is a soup or a stew, depending on how you look at it, in Guyana that's made with root vegetables cooked in coconut milk and served with fried fish or steamed okra. And sometimes people add a little bit of salt fish in there. So just deliciousness. And I named my blog Matemji because... One, it's the thing that my grandmother made that I absolutely could not nail but loved. And so I thought, okay, I'm gonna name this blog Metem G, so it forces me to perfect this dish. And because every time I think about it, I think about her. Oh, okay.
5: What would you consider to be distinctive about Guyanese cuisine?
2: Guyanese food has a lot of similarities with Caribbean food. We have six different cultures. That's what separates us a little. So we have our native Guyanese people, Amerindians. We have Afro-Guyanese who were descendants of enslaved Africans. We have Indo-Guyanese who were descendants of Indian people that came for indentured servitude. And so those foods influence what our food looks like. So you have a lot of fusion things happening. You have a lot of, an afro guyanese household might make curry, but you might see some seasoning and some ingredients that are not necessarily in a traditional curry because they have those African influences in there, right?
5: Today, while we talk, we're making one of those Caribbean curries and roti, which is a traditional kind of a bread that's helped make her food famous. First, Althea starts on the curry with Japanese sweet potatoes and pumpkin.
2: What Caribbean people call pumpkin, but it's actually calabaza squash. So basically any gourd that has an orange flesh, we call pumpkin. (laughs) So some people even call butternut squash pumpkin. So just keep that in mind when you talk to a Caribbean person. It could be anything from this squash to butternut squash to kabocha squash. As long as it's a squash and it looks like this, it's pumpkin. It's such a cold day today. I feel like this is the best dish. And we're making it how my mom taught me, which is to always make a little masala before you do anything else.
5: She takes some garlic and onions, blends it up.
2: Okay. And of course, my mom just grinds this. She does not put it in a food processor. So she would use a mortar and pestle? Yes, she would use a mortar and pestle, or what we call a sill and laura in Guyana. And it's basically a mortar and pestle, but it's a square brick and then a round brick, and then you just grind everything on it. It's a very, like, old-school mortar and pestle.
5: Remember she talked about Indian influences? She takes spices from a box like the one I've seen in an Indian kitchen. It has little compartments for each colorful ground spice. She chooses some to make a masala paste. She takes some coriander, dark ground cumin, and some curry powders. Then it all goes on the stove.
2: You're really trying to just bloom those spices and that's why you wanna add heat and oil to those spices to really like lift all the flavors. Then we're gonna add in our pumpkin and we're gonna add in our sweet potato and we're just gonna cook this up for a couple of minutes.
5: So I have a question about your home country. Yes. Guyana is in South America along the northern coast of the continent but the country is also distinctly Caribbean. How do you describe the country and its history to people who haven't been there?
2: So um, I grew up knowing that I was a Caribbean person. Everything that we do, our music, our culture is just so vibrantly Caribbean and figured out that I was a South American when I moved to America. When suddenly people would say, like, where are you from? Like, I'm from the Caribbean. They're like, which island? I'm like, ah, no, Guyana. It's in (laughs) South America. And then I'd have to try and explain, like, why Guyana was Caribbean. We're Caribbean because we um, are very much connected to other Caribbean countries that had a history of British colonization. Mm -hmm. So imagine that Britain Britain had a bunch of colonies and... They're like, we need to keep our colonies connected. And so in the way that they shaped these colonies with indentured servitude and slavery and everything else that happened, the same kind of people ended up in Guyana as they did in all those other Caribbean islands. In fact, a lot of them came to Guyana first and then went to those other Caribbean um, islands. And so our culture, our food looks very much like the food and the culture in Trinidad, in Jamaica, in Barbados. Like, all of those are English-speaking Caribbean countries that had a history of British colonization. So for us, you know, we um, listen to soca music, we listen to reggae, we eat roti and curry, we eat jerk chicken. I know the jerk is Jamaican. We also cook it in Guyana. And so the food, the culture, all the things that we do... It's just Caribbean. So I'm a Caribbean person. Yes, I happen to be from a country that is in South America, but that's just our geography. Who we are as a people are Caribbean people. It smells very similar to Indian food. My mom is Indo-Guyanese, so I was essentially raised by an Indian woman. Her Mm -hmm. ancestors are from India. Mm -hmm. And so the things that we ate every day looked like Indian food. We ate a lot of curries. My mom woke up every morning and made rotis. And um, I took pumpkin and roti for lunch for school and those kinds of things. So like this is, it's Indian food. It's just Guyanese Indian food.
5: So you've mentioned your mom a couple times. What have you learned from her?
2: Everything I know. (laughs) Yeah, you said
5: that you learned a lot from her when you were growing up.
2: When I was growing up um, from seven or eight, I was always in the kitchen, not necessarily doing everything all the time. But being there um, with my mom as she did it, and then she would sort of say to me, do this step or do that step. And by the time I was 11, then I was in the kitchen doing it. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. She was also seamstress. And so once I started cooking, then that was my job, to just cook. And she would be sewing or taking care of the family and doing all the other things that moms do. When
5: did you come up with the idea of doing a book?
2: So my followers have been asking me for a long time to write a book. Can you write a book? Can you write a book? And I started like saving recipes for a book, right? I started saying, well, if I'm going to write a book, I'm going to just not post this on my blog. I'm going to keep these recipes. And I thought I was going to write a really traditional Guyanese Caribbean type of book. And as I started going through it. You know, my husband said, if you make a book, you should make it about who you are. You know, like it should be you. And you're not even eating like that at home. And I think at this point, I hadn't even started sharing paleo recipes. I really I really only started sharing paleo recipes in 2020 because I thought there was nobody else. Which Caribbean person is going to want to hear about paleo? Like that's that was my thought. And as my husband encouraged me to keep sharing it... I realized that there were so many other people who were just like me, who were like, not just Caribbean people, but other people who wanted to try different cuisine. And so then I started thinking, well, this book should look and feel like me. And that's how this whole like Caribbean paleo book was born.
5: For people who aren't really familiar with um, paleo, the term paleo and paleo cuisine, can you just describe what the specifics of that
2: are? Paleo really encourages you to eat an anti-inflammatory diet. And really, it talks about eating the way our ancestors would have eaten, the way cave people would have eaten. They wouldn't have had all of access to all of these like highly processed um, food, convenience food. We would have had to hunt and gather our food, right? And so going back to those principles of... What can you hunt? What can you gather? Well, you can hunt lots of protein. You can gather lots of nuts and vegetables. And so that's the foundation for paleo. When I eat paleo, I feel my best self. I always say that I'm paleo-ish because I am also a curven person and there are some foods that actually don't make me sick that are not paleo. And so I allow myself to eat those in smaller portions than I would have before I became paleo. By the end of 2016, 2017, I had started to have this really more holistic lifestyle and way of eating and really leaning on paleo more than anything else.
5: And what were some of the staples that you were able to transform to gluten-free?
2: The things that I had to actually convert to paleo were all the things that use flour, right? The roti, the sweetbreads, the pastries, those things I had to sort of think out of the box for and then actually as i started to think about it some of it i was like oh i could actually play with some like root vegetables or ground provision as we call them so you'll see a recipe for plantain patties where i while working on this book realized that if you actually pound plantain just like you would for fufu it actually becomes like a dough Um, the same thing with cassava so i also made a cassava roti it's just cassava pounded amazing
5: Do the people who you work with at the publishing company, you know, vet the recipes by cooking them themselves first?
2: Yeah, so it's wild. I didn't actually know what cooking, making a cookbook would be like until I actually made a cookbook. Several people will make some of the recipes. They don't make all, but they'll make a few from each chapter to see things like not necessarily if it tastes good, but if the steps make sense, if it's missing anything, if you get a finished product at the end. And remember, with Caribbean food, they don't necessarily have a point of reference, so they can't tell if this tastes authentic or not. They just know that, okay, it tastes like something is edible, it tastes like something's good. One of the most scary things is putting a book out there and waiting for Caribbean people to say whether or not it tastes good.
5: Can you talk a little bit about, you know, developing a following as a food blogger and even the decision and the idea to become one?
2: So I started my blog in 2013. I wanted my food to be as good as my mom's food. Like I didn't want to try and figure that out. So I started recording all the things that she was telling me. I started measuring and being very specific about how I would cook things, and I started sharing it with my friends. And my friends were like, wow, this came out perfect when I tried it, you should start a blog. And that's how the blog was started. And, um, you know, we got metmg we're, we're going through the phases. And I shared a roti recipe um, very early on and made a YouTube video. I made this video with my iPad. It had zero sound because my crying baby in the background. And I posted it to YouTube and it very quickly got 100,000 views, which was in 2013 was like, amazing. It now has over a million views. But Um, people started referring to it and saying like, we want more, we want more, can you show us more? And I think that was the thing that really got me into this blogging. And it was a hobby for a long time. In 2019, I had my third baby and I'm home again. And I was like, I'm trying to find something to do, keep myself busy because no, having three kids and a new baby is not enough. And my husband says to me, "Um, you know, you have your blog, why don't you try making that a full-time thing and really focusing on it and doing it and give it a good go. And if it doesn't work out, then find yourself something else to do or whatever. And so I was like, all right, you know what? I'll take your challenge and I'll do it. And so in 2019, I got a schedule. I started sharing more often than I did in the past. I started to think of recipes that I wanted to perfect and share. And I really started to think about teaching people recipes, right? And it's become a household name in Guyana and turned into this business and this thing that I didn't even think it could become. So do you get
5: revenue from your blog?
2: I do get revenue through ads on my blog. I do get revenue also from content I create for brands on social media, photos I take from recipes I create or writing a recipe. Um, So that's the main income for the blog.
5: What are some of the things that you miss most about Guyana?
2: Um, I definitely miss that feeling that you belong somewhere. Like this is home and, you know, like you belong here and everybody else is just like you, even though we're not, we're very different, but still like just that feeling of it's home, you know, like you feel grounded, you feel like you just belong. Um, And now Colorado is home as well. We've been here for 12 years and it does feel like home, but there's always something that's like not quite home, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know any other way to describe it.
5: Have you been able to find a Guyanese community here in Colorado?
2: I've not been able to find a specifically Guyanese community, but I found a Caribbean community.
5: Mm -hmm. And so is Rochi similar to Naan?
2: Yes, it's very similar to naan. In this version of roti, we're not going to use any yeast. We're going to use baking powder. And let me clarify why I say in this version, because Guyanese people listening are probably going to be like, we never put yeast in roti. Well, a couple of years ago, I was teaching my son. He was in seven how to make roti. And I wanted him to have success with his first roti. And I added a little bit of yeast to the dough because yeast stabilizes dough. And so I was like, I wanted it to like work for him. And I want him to enjoy it and feel like I can do this. And it worked so well that I shared it on my blog. And now so many people have made roti using it and have had success doing it and said like, it cracked some code that they didn't even know existed. (laughs) So roti is not gluten free. And it's not paleo. But had I not kind of had that easy roti recipe and kind of gone viral and blew up, I've now shared roti on Food Network. Like, I think I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't have had the opportunity to make this paleo book and have it be available for everyone. So although I can't eat it, I love watching people enjoy it. So it's kind of like how you laminate dough for croissants. You would baste this with some oil. You're just building layers. So you have the fat. So when you roll it out, you'll end up having this flatbread that's just flaky and just an abundance of layers that you can just pick apart. And because Colorado is so dry, I have to make sure these guys are really oiled or it will start flaking on the top and getting crusty and then it won't be that great. So then does the roti get fried? It gets cooked on just like the Indian skillet that they would cook things on. The thing that makes it really layered is that we will clap it at the end and that's the one thing that Guyanese people do to their process that um, other cultures don't really do.
5: What does that mean clapping?
2: Imagine that the roti is an accordion and you toss it in the air and then you like actually just clap your hands with it. All of the layers kind of break apart. So you'll cook, cook this a little bit and then flip it.
5: Okay. It's cool how it's puffing up into I guess like maybe two or three inches thick.
2: Yeah. So you want it to puff up because that's how you get the layers. And then as soon as you take it off the heat, you're going to clap the roti. So you fold it in half and then you just. So you
5: basically like hold the roti, Toss it a little bit and catch it with your clapping hands. Yes. I've never seen anybody do that before. And then you do
2: it like that. And you could just eat that. Okay. Yeah.
5: I'll I'll, I'll do as you say. (laughs) Can I take a little tear of it? Yeah. It's sort of like it's shredded itself. It's like bread shards.
2: And then you'll dip into your stew and scoop it up. So in the introduction of the book, you wrote that you came to the
5: US when you were 18 years old. And now you're 41. And you say that the fact that I've now lived longer in the US than I have in my birth country is still daunting to me. Why is that daunting?
2: Because I feel like um, I didn't choose to come to America. I came to America with my family, right? Um, I was in high school. Um, The immigrant story is, you know, your family sends for you. And whenever those papers come through, you leave in the night and you go. I feel like I actually left in the night because I was in high school. I was going to go to law school and all this sort of stuff. So even when I was living in New York and I'd finished college and now I'm working in marketing and, like, living the New York City life, like... Somewhere in there, I felt that I was going to return home and the years just went on. And even now where I'm like doing so much more in Guyana, like I feel fulfilled that I'm doing so much more in Guyana, like going there and launched my cookbook in Guyana. That's where I did the first event. It feels like it's so daunting. Like, how did you end up being here for so long? You know, and I don't think I had a plan of like how I was going to get home, but I just knew that. At some point, I was going to return back home and like have a life at home. And do
5: you still have that dream?
2: I do. I do still have that dream. Whether it is when my kids are young enough to understand and appreciate the culture or in retirement, like at some point, I am going to return home. Okay, so I'm going to put yeah. some on my plate. This smells really good.
5: While we've been talking, the curry finished sizzling and the roti is all clapped. Now Althea will show me how to eat it.
2: Grab some roti, put it on your plate, and then you're going to just rip pieces of the roti, scoop up that um, stew, or curry, actually, because this is a curry, and then enjoy.
5: Mmm. I just want to burn my face in this whole thing. (laughs) So I'm not getting a fork at all.
2: In restaurants, they do offer you a fork because of that little bit of colonialism stuff Mm -hmm. where they feel like if you're outside, you can't be eating with your hands.
5: This is really tasty. Oh, good. Yeah, I love it. And I can see how, like, if you didn't use these particular ingredients, you could just substitute out the different types of sweet potatoes that were used and use something different.
2: Yeah. If my mom made this, she would make it without any potatoes, right? But sometimes to stretch food, right? I grew up poor. So she might put some white potatoes in there because those are cheap or just use the regular, you know, orange sweet potatoes. Either of those work.
5: Well, Althea, thank you so much for letting us come over. This has been such an interesting experience to hear like about, you know, life in Guyana as it relates to food. So thank you so much for this afternoon. It's been really interesting and fun.
2: I'm glad that you can enjoy just a piece of my culture here in Colorado, particularly the roti that my mom taught me to make when I was so young. That's such a part of my family and our tradition. So, no, thank you.
0: Althea Brown's new cookbook is called Caribbean Paleo. She spoke with CPR's Elaine Tassi. We'll link to her recipes on our website, which is CPR.org.
7: You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this.
0: There's still time to join us for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Our next book to read together is called Heartbreak, a personal and scientific journey. It's by Colorado science writer Florence Williams. The project began when her 25-year marriage fell apart.
2: The first thing that kind of rocked my world was how much it hurt! After thinking my whole life that heartbreak was sort of
7: melodramatic, and my friends were going through it, I, I just thought it was um,
4: that they were being a
2: little bit, you know, histrionic. But actually, you know, when it happened to me, I was like, "Oh my God, this is so devastating!" And I felt it in my body, like I had been plugged into an amplifier. Like I was like buzzing with anxiety and grief and fear.
0: We've chosen her book ahead of the Valentine's Day barrage. So read Heartbreak, then meet us where else but Loveland, Colorado, Wednesday, February 7th. We'll be at the Rialto Theater, where Williams will also discuss the science of bouncing back. It really blew me away, this advice I got that I had never heard before, that we can find resilience in beauty. And that if we can learn to
2: cultivate beauty, we can become more resilient.
0: Again, Heartbreak by Florence Williams is our latest pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. You can find more information and tickets to our February 7th recording at Loveland's Rialto Theater at CPR.org slash Turn the Page. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team.
7: Tyler Bender, Carl Bielich, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer,
2: Molly Cruz, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher,
7: Matt Hers,
0: Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Chandra Thomas Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.